We're in Acts chapter 21. <laughs> we got, we got a rough and tumble scene this morning. As we get into this, I want to just briefly, as I like to do, recap what we looked at last week because uh, it's very important that we understand it sets the stage for what we're looking at this morning. The Apostle Paul has been wrapping up, he had just wrapped up his third missionary journey. I mean, he had made three trips around the Roman Empire, stopping and evangelizing many cities along the way. It's been estimated that he evangelized 1,500 square miles of territory in the places where he stopped. That's a lot of work. And so coming back to Jerusalem, he wanted to get there by the Feast of Pentecost. He really felt that was important. And uh, so he gets back to Jerusalem. He's well received by by James, the brother of Jesus, also the pastor of the Jerusalem church, and the elders there at the church in Jerusalem. So uh, he proceeded to relate in detail, we're told, the things that God had been doing among the Gentiles in the many cities he had visited throughout these journeys. So we saw that also that part of Paul's purpose in this because it was he wanted to demonstrate that the love of God had gone to the Gentiles. And a Gentile is anybody that's not Jewish, okay? We are Gentiles, unless you're Jewish, then that's great. But he needed them to know that God's heart was now to save both Jew and Gentile alike. It was even. The, the Jews no longer had preferred, they, in, in one respect, they had preferred status. And we can look at that. I, I'm not going to go there. In Romans 9, 10, and 11, we see God's heart towards Israel still. He's not finished with that nation. Uh, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem all the time because, and oh, I'm in a rabbit trail if I'm not careful. <laughs> but the, the, the leadership in Jerusalem was excited. Hearing about Paul's travels, hearing about the work that God was doing, hearing about the, the, the massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit that had been taking place in various parts of the empire. So it's interesting too that they go back and, and as, Paul, as Paul concludes that, they begin to relate what God had been doing in Jerusalem and the surrounding region, saying, you know what? The same thing's been happening here. Thousands of Jews had been converting to Christ, had been walking away from Judaism as a means to relate to God. Uh, and yet they were getting hung up. They were confused because they, all that they knew was Judaism. And with these vast numbers of Jews that were getting saved in Jerusalem, the surrounding region, there were some issues that had not yet been worked out. Before we get too far into that, I just want to remind us, as you study the book of Acts, you see that Paul uses two different tactics. Now with the Gentiles, they were ignorant of the law of Moses. They frankly didn't care. <laughs> they, that wasn't how they rolled. That wasn't how they were oriented. And so Paul appealed to them on the basis of wisdom and on the basis of the false gods of, uh, of the Roman and the Greek pantheons of gods and all of that. With the Jews, they could care less about those foreign gods. What they cared about was Judaism. What they cared about was the law of Moses. And what they cared about were the customs and the traditions that they had grown up with. So Paul appealed to them on that basis. Repeatedly, we see that he, he would demonstrate from the scriptures. The first thing he would do, he'd roll into a town and, and he would go to the synagogue and begin to relate from the scriptures how Jesus was indeed the anticipated Messiah, the Savior of, of Israel. He would teach them that if they embraced Christ, 
that they would now move away from the condemnation that the law of Moses brought. Because we understand as New Testament Christians that the law of Moses could never save anyone. It's called the ministration of death. That it was good, it's an expression of God's heart and holiness and all of that. And yet, and yet, no one could attain it. No one could keep it. No no one could be perfectly obedient to that. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Israel of his day, you will in no way see the kingdom of God. What he's saying is that you can, essentially, there are two ways to obtain righteousness. Uh, he says, you know, you got to be perfect because my father in heaven is perfect. He's saying that to make a point, not that perfection is something that I have to attain myself, but I can never become perfected by obedience to the law or obedience to a set of rules, to a religious mandate. But by faith, I can receive his righteousness. And, I, and by faith, we're told, and it's a wonderful exposition in the book of Romans, that by faith now, by simply believing, trusting that he went to that cross for me, as we discussed a minute ago, that he died in my place, that he rose from the dead to give me life, that in that, his righteousness is transferred to me. In the moment I believe, I am, I am immersed in the righteousness of Christ. So Paul was giving that message to the Jews and saying, look, it's not about obedience to the law of Moses. All that could do is condemn you. But let me tell you about Jesus. And for that reason, gossip, criticism of Paul's message had begun to spread throughout Jerusalem to the Messianic Jewish Christians there. So their claim was that he had instructed them to forsake Moses. And the word forsake, we looked at that last week. It's the same word that's used for apostasy. And he wasn't instructing them to abandon Moses. He was instructing them to abandon the law as a means to relate to God. He never was told them that they needed to turn away from their heritage as Jews. So uh, the other thing too, I think that's important to mention here is that you got, we've got to remember, this is a transitional period for the church. I mean, the, this is, the church has been birthed, yeah, a quarter century before. And they're, 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 they're figuring things out as they go. That's why they had to have the council at Jerusalem after Paul's first journey. Him and Barnabas go back and the, the apostles write a letter for them to take and to circulate to the churches and all of that. Because they're essentially holding these things up to the Lord and saying, what do we do with this? Paul's detractors were taking advantage of the confusion that people had. They were using it to put forth false information. He never said, you have to abandon he said, there's something better. And, and, and you guys, a few minutes ago, I was kind of joking about the book of Hebrews and who wrote it. Yes, I believe Paul did, but it doesn't say that. So that's up for grabs. One of the things that I believe is it, it, we can see borne out in this passage was the, the absolute necessity of holding Judaism up to the new covenant, to Christianity, to what God had done through Christ. And the book of Hebrews is a series. It's a book of contrasts. The writer says, look at Judaism here. Now look at Jesus. He's better. Now look at this aspect of the law here. Now look at Jesus. He's better. Now look at this as far as the sacrificial system. Now look at the one sacrifice we have in Jesus. It's better. And that whole book, the whole book of Hebrews is a series of contrasts that addresses the issues that were going on here that we see just a small peak of in the text here in Acts 21. But it was a big deal for the Jews, the Jewish Christians, and the Gentiles in the first century as they parsed their way through what was going on and what was happening in the spiritual realm as a result of Jesus having gone to the cross and risen from the dead and now offering salvation to anybody who would come. 
No qualifiers. So in an attempt to remedy that, the, the Jerusalem elders, they had instructed Paul to take four men through a process called the process of the limited vow of a Nazarite. And I talked last week about, you know what, there are two major interpretations of this. One is that it was a huge mistake and they had no business doing, taking Paul through that. The other is that Paul was doing this not out of love, not because, or not out of necessity by, by trying to compel people to live by the law of Moses again. That's ridiculous. He is so strongly opposed to that, but that he did it out of love to be all things to all people in order that he may win some. He was doing this as a means of evangelizing the Jews. The issue that he had uh, was that the law couldn't save anyone. And so in carrying out this vow, his motivation was not to shore up the law in some way, that, but to demonstrate the love that Christ had for them as they were. And believe me, folks, Christianity is come as you are. If you're of a mind that, well, when I get my life together, then I'll come, good luck with that. We're all broken. We all have issues in areas. We're all in process. The church is a hospital. And one of the commitments that I made coming into this church six years ago is this would be a safe place to worship. And I will defend that. It will be a safe place for us to come, to come as we are, to love one another. And when people open that door, I want them more than anything to see the love of Christ being shed abroad in our hearts. And it's so important. You're not going to find that out in the world. I'm going to talk about that in a bit. So as we wrapped up last week, we saw that Paul, he and he, these four guys, they're nearing the, the completion of this vow. <laughs> and he, the Jews that had come from Asia, they, they were, Asia was where Ephesus was. They see him walking through the temple precincts with a guy by the name of Trophimus. And they assume that Paul had taken Trophimus behind the Sorig in the temple. Those are really good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, James, I just had to do that. <laughs> now we looked at that. Can I have a bite? No, I'm just, I totally can't. <laughs> now, when we look at the Sorig, uh, I've got a slide here that I'll, that I'll show you here in a sec. Uh, it was a waist-high wall. If you went up on the Temple Mount, there would be the court of the Gentiles, and then there was this wall that surrounded uh, the area surrounding the temple proper itself. And, and there were signs on this wall saying that if you were gonna, if you were not a Jew, if you walked beyond this wall, you are responsible for your own death. Alright? It was a big deal for them. It was serious. So, the Jews assume that Paul took Trophimus behind the sword, that he took him into the temple itself. And we'll talk about that in a bit. That was a really, really serious offense. Not a small thing. Interesting. The Romans, uh, when they occupied Judea, they took the literally the law into their own hands. And I'm not talking, about, talk, not talking about the law of Moses. I'm talking about the law of the land. And they removed the right of execution, stoning, from the Jews. When, Peter, or when Stephen was stoned, that was against the law. But they took the, the right of execution from the Jews and placed it squarely on the Romans. That's why they took Jesus through the six mock trials and all of that. But there was one exception that they made. And that's that if the temple guard, and that was the police force, a, a Levitical priest, people of the priestly line, that were they, were they had their own police force. And the temple guard had the right, this was such an important thing to the Jews, they had the right to execute 
someone who was caught, a Gentile, even if it was a Roman citizen, going behind the Sorig. Because the Jews were absolutely insistent that that would defile their holy place, their most holy place. So just a little background. That's why they get so worked up about the Apostle Paul here. So uh, we finished last week by looking at verse 30. And uh, it says in verse 30, and all the city was disturbed. Uh, that's translated worked up in other translations or uh, that they were really, uh, they really got jacked up about this. And the people ran together and seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. So again, in slide one here, uh, that you, you see Herod's temple. I, this is a bit like the, the one I showed you last week, but I've, I've done some different things with it. You see that there's the court of the Gentiles there and then the Sorg, the wall of separation. And then inside the, the court was the court of the women. So beyond the Sorg, the red line, the red box around there, if you were Jewish, you could go beyond that. Now, if you were Jewish, you could go beyond that, go in through the gates into the temple proper, into the court of the women. It's called the court of the women because women could not go beyond that. And there were stairs in each of these two, and each one was elevated. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but it's fascinating the way that this was worked out by the Jews. And so they're accusing Paul of taking this guy, Trophimus, beyond the sword, beyond the wall. I want you to note, too, that one of the things I've added is the, the arrow that says east on this, because I'm going to show you some other views, and we're going to kind of rotate around counterclockwise and look at this from a couple of different angles as we go along this morning. So uh, that's what's going on. The doors were, they, they were no doubt, the doors uh, that were to the court of the women. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, beyond that was where the priests did their stuff and, and got into directly into the temple itself. The other thing about this is this is reminiscent of the riot in Ephesus. Remember that guy Demetrius? He was a silversmith and they were losing business and he incited a riot in Ephesus where the whole city got into an uproar and they ended up at the amphitheater. <laughs> and they were so confused. A lot of them didn't even know why they were there. They just knew that they were mad. <laughs> and that was just a very interesting scene. So uh, he stirred up a riot against the way. That's what they called the early church. Now, the temple guard would have closed the doors. I mean, again, they were there and their presence was known. And you got to understand, you know how it is like on holiday weekends, the police are beefed up. I mean, there's, there's cops everywhere and, and all of that, which is a good thing because people tend to, on holidays, tend to get a little wild. Well, this is a feast week in Israel, and so both the Romans would have had an extra presence there, as well as the temple guard. And so they see what's going on. They see this huge crowd grab this guy, drag him out of the temple, and, and somebody makes the announcement, shut the doors. We've got to figure this out, because they wanted to protect the temple from an offender running in and taking cover in the temple itself. That would be utterly defiling. Uh, and they also wanted to make sure that they <laughs> took care of business and shut off whatever was going on at that moment. So uh, that's the temple guard. And verse 31 says, Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. So somebody called the police, they, you know, 911, <laughs> not, not there. But I mean, somebody's, you got to understand too, there was a strong Roman military presence in Jerusalem. Uh, in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount stood the, it was called the Antonia Fortress. Uh, 
now, there's a secular Jewish historian by the name of Flavius Josephus. I love reading his stuff because, and he has volumes, uh, The Antiquities of the Jews, uh, that he does a really detailed description of this. Uh, he writes that King Herod had initially, remember, uh, they talked about it, it took 46 years to build Herod's temple because King Herod was a brilliant, he was a madman, but he was also a brilliant architect and he built things all over. And that he originally built the fortress as a, as a palace. Uh, the Romans came in and said, not so fast. We need a place to be able to watch the Jews, especially on their holidays. And they took it over and made it a fortress. So uh, in slide two here, just zooming in from the first slide, you can see here uh, that he gives dimensions. Uh, and Josephus gives, he gives, again, detailed, more detail than I'm going to go into here. But just sort of a rough overview. There were four square corners to this fortress, four towers. Uh, three of them were 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet. A cubit is about a foot and a half. It was from a, a man's elbow to the end of his hand, and that's about a foot and a half. And so, you know, when we see you know, Noah built the ark and it was X amount of cubits and, and all of that, we can pretty easily do the math on that. So about 70 feet or about 100, uh, 70, 50 cubits would be about 75 feet high. Now, the fourth tower it was in the southeast corner of the fortress was about 70 cubits. It was higher than the other three or about 105 feet high. That would have been, you could see that thing from anywhere on the Temple Mount. And that was on purpose because they used it as a lookout to be able to see what was going on with the Jews. So as this angry crowd drags Paul out of the temple, they begin to beat him. They intend to kill him. Uh, news comes to the commander that, hey, there's something going on down there. We need to respond. And so we also know from chapter 23, the commander was a man named Claudius Lysias. Okay. Uh, he was a Roman tribune. Uh, that means that he was a commander of a thousand men. There was, a, again, there were a lot of people here. Uh, in verse 32, it says he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so the Roman, the, the, the Roman military command structure uh, was that there was a legate and then a tribune and then a centurion. All right, the legate, he was a guy that was in charge of one or more uh, Roman legions. And they had upwards of about 6,000 men each. This guy would be, you know, like a five-star general. He would be somebody that was over a lot of the military. Under him served the tribunes, and the tribunes were each responsible for a thousand people. Now, under the tribune were centurions, and each centurion was responsible for a hundred soldiers. So when we see that he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, they're coming down the steps of this tower and out onto the Temple Mount, there would, this would have been a scene. I mean, we are talking soldiers flooding out. If there are centurions, plural, each one has a hundred guys, and the tribune himself is over a thousand, this is a big deal. And, and, but the Romans, they were, they were very certain about crowd control. They also knew that Holiday weeks, <laughs> again, not unlike what we see now, that they would beef it up. So they were on alert to begin with. This, this riot breaks out, says the whole city's in an uproar, and they respond. I think it's interesting that people must have decided it was probably not a good idea to continue to beat the daylights out of Paul. They backed off as the tribune and the centurions 
approach. Verse 33, then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. This is like, okay, what's this about? What's going on here? It's interesting. Luke tells us, the Luke, the one who wrote the book of Acts, the commander had him bound with two chains. Now, as we'll see in verse 38, the commander thought, he thought Paul was an Egyptian insurrectionist. And he likely had his hands and his feet bound with these chains. You incapacitate this guy. He's dangerous. I want to pause for a moment. I want to look at this. I want to consider something. Remember in Acts 20, 23, verse 23, Paul had shared with the Ephesian elders at Miletus. He said that the Holy Spirit had been testifying in every city. So throughout Greece, Macedonia, Asia, that's a big area. All the cities he had been evangelizing in, he said, the Holy Spirit is telling me in every city that chains and trouble awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. Most recently in Caesarea, we looked at Agabus, the prophet. He acted it out by tying his own hands and feet uh, with Paul's belt. And then he prophesied that Paul would be bound, delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. So in human terms, (laughs) being falsely accused dragged out of the temple and beaten by an angry mob who literally want to kill you is not a good thing, obviously, (laughs) at all. But we can only imagine what was going through the Apostle Paul's head at this moment. Maybe he had been rubbing something that hurt and he holds his hand out. You ever do that? You see blood? It's like, whoa, I'm bleeding. Don't know. Perhaps he's nodding at the soldiers like, I'm sure glad you're here as he's trying to get up and to get up onto his feet. We don't know. Here's what we do know. Paul had been utterly determined, utterly determined. And if you've been with us through the study in Acts, you see that he was stubborn when it came to whether or not he went to Jerusalem. They kept trying to talk him out of it. He said, no, what are you doing? Why are you telling me? No, I am going to go. I don't care if it kills me, essentially. And I'm paraphrasing, but that was his attitude. And now, at this moment, having been beaten, having been chained, now being taken into custody by the Romans, the Gentiles, He's got to be seeing confirmation of what God had been showing him all along. Think about it. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit had been testifying in every city that he would run into when he got to Jerusalem. Whether you think that it was a harebrained scheme by the elders in Jerusalem for him to do the vow or not, regardless of that, it backfired, it failed. God had gotten Paul into a position to where now he's here and he's seeing confirmation of all that he had been anticipating before he got to Jerusalem. I think he's also offering with the understanding, again, by faith, things that are not seen. He doesn't have the whole picture yet. But we know that he's a man of great faith. And somehow, some way he's seeing this has to be God's will for my life because these things are coming about exactly as the Holy Spirit showed me. Verse 34, and some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. This is when the commander is questioning him, the tribune. So when he couldn't ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. So he's trying to talk to to Paul and and the crowd is so worked up. They are so murderous at this, literally. At this point, the commander says, we're not getting anywhere out here. Let's take him to the barracks. Uh, And and I want to take a minute here. And again, I like to do these slides because I I like to have you oriented that these are real events that happen in real places with real people. It's not just Bible stories. And and, and folks, uh, in slide three here, we're rotating around and now we're looking at the Temple Mount 
And this is an artist's conception. I thought this was a cool uh, conception because it looks like a photograph. But this is an artist's conception of what the Temple Mount would have looked like in those days, what Herod's Temple would have looked like in those days. So swiveling around, looking at it from the northeast corner, as you see east, uh, the reason I put east on that other map is you can see that we've swiveled around now. We're looking at it from a different angle. And then number four, the Antonia Fortress would be on the right in about the center of the frame where the circle is there in number four. So I want to look at one more. Uh, This is number five. The the fifth slide is a scale model uh, in Jerusalem. I've been to this model a couple of times and it's fascinating. It is so well done that the people walking around look like they're giants. It's just, it's a weird, because it kind of fools your senses. I mean, this thing... It's it's the old city of Jerusalem, and it's all laid out. And I don't know who built it, but they did a fabulous job. They even got the terrain right. You can see the Teropian Valley and the Valley of, of um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the Kidron Valley, which would be right under the east sign, where the temple, the east elevation of the temple drops off. It drops right into the Kidron Valley. So if you were standing there in reality today, you would be looking from, you'd be standing a little bit, a little high, but right from the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus went to pray with his men on the night that he was taken into custody and then executed. So now, one of the things that if you see in, in, in slide five, the four towers of the Antonia Fortress there, they're all the same height. <laughs> so whoever did this wasn't reading Josephus. <laughs> so, but I have Photoshop. <laughs> so in the sixth slide... <laughs> I took care of that. Yeah, it took Herod a long time to build it, but hey, you know, five minutes in Photoshop, we got ourselves a higher tower. So anyway, <clears throat> verse 35, and when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. Now they, these people, they're grabbing at him. They're surrounded. They're still screaming and yelling, and they're trying to get a hold of him. It says in verse 36, for the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. Now, <laughs> The stairs that ran from the Fortress Antonia into the temple area were alluded to in verse 32 when it says that the commander came down the stairs out onto the Temple Mount. Now Josephus also speaks, he writes about the stairs as well. He says there are two sets. They wanted to be able to respond in a hurry and they could go one direction or the other onto the Temple Mount. And evidently they came out of both, I don't know. But there were two sets of stairs that, that gave them the ability for quick response. Again, uh, the national feasts in Israel... They were huge crowds. Somewhere, it's been estimated between one and two million people. That city would swell. People would do pilgrimages from all over the empire. The three of the seven national feasts that were required, if you're over 20 years old, this is one of them. Pentecost is one of the three. And so there would have been huge crowds on the Temple Mount. There would have been huge crowds in the city. It would have just been full of people. And so the Romans respond. They come out. They come down the stairs. And now... They're trying to get him back to the barracks. They're trying to get him back to the fortress because that's where they can get cover from the mob and start to figure out what's going on. Interesting too, a quarter century before this, another bloodthirsty mob had come together in the city during another national feast. That time it was Passover. They'd insisted on the same thing as the Lord Jesus stood trial before Pilate, using the same words even, away with him. In both contexts, when they're screaming away with him, they're not saying, take him out of here. They're saying, we want him dead. That's what they said about Jesus, and that's what they're saying about Paul here, verse 37. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? 
<laughs> he replied, can you speak Greek? Now the commander is shocked. <laughs> Have you ever spoken to somebody that you know is from a foreign land? You know, maybe they're talking to other people in, in Indian or, you know, Swahili or whatever it is. And, and you're, you're, what cracks me up is when people try to talk loud when they think that that's going to help. <laughs> so what country are you from? You know, it's like, <laughs> but then they answer you with perfect English. That happened to me when we were in Thailand. We had all these pastors come in from Burma and Myanmar, and we were running a school and teaching these guys. And some of these guys, I mean, their English was fantastic. Some of them, we needed two translators because they all had dialects. They don't have just one language. Yeah, there's Burmese, but they would have Lahu or, you know, different, different tribal dialects that were very, it was very complicated on the language. But anyway, this commander, he, he, Paul says, can I, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> and he says, can you speak Greek? Now, Paul's perfect Greek, again, it was a shock to the commander because he'd concluded in his mind that Paul was somebody else. He thought that Paul was an insurrectionist from Egypt. Verse 38, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? Now, this is interesting. I'll give you a little bit of background on this. Again, reading the writings of Josephus, I love the color that he brings to some of these biblical narratives. Uh, he tells us there was a group called the Sicarii in the first century. And years before, they had incited a rebellion. Now, the Sicarii, they got their word because a sicca was a small dagger, okay? Six to ten inches long, somewhere there. It was small, easily concealed. And so the Sicarii were known as the dagger men, they were a splinter group. They were Jewish zealots, Egyptian, but Jewish heritage. Uh, and they were opposed, absolutely violently opposed to the Roman occupation of Judea. And they would go in and take care of business because they operated in the city, in the region as assassins. So they would slip into a crowd. They'd have a very sharp dagger that would be concealed in their cloak. And as in, the, in a crowd of people, as they walked by, they would just slide that thing in and, and right back out stick it back in their cloak and keep walking as the guy collapsed, mortally wounded, bleeding on the ground behind him. And it was, it was a terrorist act, believe me. They didn't call them terrorists. They called them assassins, but that's what was going on. <laughs> These guys, <laughs> thinking about, you know, where we get, I, and I don't know where we get the, the term cloak and dagger, but these guys are the original, they're the real deal. I was also looking at, uh, remember Annas and Caiaphas, they were the high priests during the days of Jesus. And uh, Annas had a son whose name was Jonathan. He was murdered by one of the Sicarii, uh, one of the dagger men. So at this point, the soldiers are confused and they're confusing Paul with this group. Uh, they're thinking that riot started because Paul is an Egyptian assassin. And it's totally a case of mistaken identity. Uh, and Paul says, well, he, the commander says, aren't you the guy that led the 4,000 murderers out in the wilderness? And Paul says, I'm a Jew. What do you mean Egyptian? I'm not an Egyptian. I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So Paul responds to this. I mean, this guy is shocked at Paul's perfect Greek. And, and because he, he's got him in his mind as this Egyptian Sakari guy. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm a Jew. And I'm from a city that you would know. Tarsus was a well-known city. It was on established trade routes. It was on the mainland north of the island of Cyprus. 
uh, where Paul grew up. He didn't grow up in Israel. We don't know when he left Tarsus and, and came to Jerusalem because he was educated there. And we'll look at that uh, next week or the week after, depending on how fast I decide to go. But so Paul is, you know, he's interacting with this commander here. And he knows that if this guy had traveled from Rome to Judea, if he had gone over land, he would have gone right through Tarsus. So it would be known to this guy. Uh, and when he says no mean city, he's not talking about like Portland is a mean city <laughs> downtown. He's not saying that. He's saying, I am not from an insignificant city. It'd be like in our vernacular, it'd be like saying, well, you know, I'm not some hick from Hicksville. You know, I'm from a, I'm from a city that, you know, I'm well healed, essentially what he's saying here. So he pleads with the commander. Now, the word implore here, I mean, he is pleading with him. He is coming just short of begging him to speak to the people. And I got to tell you, this is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So at this moment, when his life is in danger from an angry mob, he'd been beaten within an inch of his life, he's under arrest, he's suspected of being a dangerous criminal. Paul has one thing on his mind. I know, what a great time to share the gospel. But that's the Apostle Paul. This guy, uh, this guy has guts. Verse 40, so when he, the commander, had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language saying, <laughs> so the chapter ends there, but I want to point out, this is it. It's, this is the moment. Paul had, he'd been living for this, waiting for decades now. For this. It's the moment that explains why Paul was willing to go and to die in Jerusalem. It's the moment why when he wrote to the Romans, he said that he would willingly become accursed of God. He would lay down his salvation in order to reach the Jews for them to be saved. It's the moment why it was so important for him to go back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, knowing huge crowds, a huge audience would be there, his countrymen. This was his moment. Don't make any mistake about it. The circumstances are are pretty rough. But he wanted to share with those who had been blind to the plan of God and to the truth of the gospel. And the overarching desire of his heart wasn't, I need to get out of being under arrest. I need to get away from this murderous mob. It was, I need to give them the love of Jesus. I need for them, I so need for them to understand that I would risk everything for them to come to know the love of God. It's interesting. Paul wasn't a charismatic guy. Not at all. Uh, in and of himself, he wasn't an excellent orator. He, he wasn't good at that. He wouldn't be somebody that we would consider to have star quality. Oh, he can, he can command an audience. Second Corinthians 10.10 tells us, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive. His speech is contemptible. So, you know, that's not a great reputation. You know, that's not the reputation. He's not going to be going and doing a TED Talk anytime soon. <laughs> But all of this, all of this is because he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He's empowered by the one in whom he had come to give his life and entrust his life to. And he knows, he trusts, he had been in prayer for this for a long time, folks. And he knows that if God's in it, he'll have their attention. And guess what? He stands up, he holds his hand up to quiet. And I picture a chain draping off of his arm as he holds his hand up. And what does the crowd do? They become absolutely silent. The same people who just a few minutes before, you could not control, the Roman army couldn't control them. These are the same guys that were screaming, screaming, kill him, away with him. 
Get him out of here. The same guy the soldiers had to put on their shoulders is about to be hauled off to jail. In the midst of all of it, God was moving. We're told that he speaks to them in Hebrew, their native tongue. He was, Paul had dual citizenship. He was a citizen of Rome, but he was also a Jew. And so he had the freedom, number one, to go about the empire. He could go wherever he chose to go because he had great freedom as a citizen of Rome. But he also understood his heritage. He understood his lineage. He understood that he was a Jew. And so now he appeals to them as a Jew, uh, speaks to them in Hebrew. What an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it had come to it. And you know, I would not, you can't make this stuff up. I, you, Paul could not have planned this. He could, he, all he knew is he had to go, even though they were telling him, don't go, don't go, don't go. He had to go. And so then he gets into this whole scheme that the elders had cooked up. And, and again, whether you think that that was a scheme or you think that it was something that he was doing is really irrelevant because it brings him to this moment. It brings him to this point. I think it's also unusual for a paragraph in the Bible to end with a comma. <laughs> it stops. It literally, it stops. In the, and I don't, I don't know of any other paragraph in the Bible. And there might be, but I'm not aware of any other paragraph that ends in the middle of a sentence. This one does. You want to know what that means? That means you've got to come next week. Because <laughs> I'm not going to go any further. <laughs> you know what it's like? like when your favorite TV show is on and it gets right up to that moment. It's like, wow, things are really happening. <gasps> next week. Yeah, next week. Unless you decide to read ahead, which I heartily recommend. You've got a Bible. So as we wrap up this morning, I want to take a look at some things. The first is this. Are you having trouble? I want you to ignore the adage, God will never give you more than you can handle. I have two words. Well, actually, it's one hyphenated word for that. Hog wash. (laughs) That statement is patently false. And people love to toss that around. And I'm like, oh, Lord, help me to be patient here. God routinely allows more than we can handle in our lives. That's what he does. That's part of how he drives us to greater reliance upon him. So are you having trouble? Let the Spirit of God direct your heart. The Apostle Paul had definitely, he had more, way more on his plate than he signed up for. He had no idea this was going to happen. But he also understood on a deep level that walking with Christ, that, that having a relationship with Jesus, it would not be free from trouble. But he, he, could, he had someone in whom he could trust. And I'm telling you, folks, if you've got trouble, trust Jesus. Are you struggling? Maybe it's not chains or angry mobs. I hope not. But trouble is part of this life. Maybe you don't have the whole picture. Paul didn't. Kicked around, beaten, bruised, bleeding probably, chained, hauled around under the shoulders of the soldiers, about to be hauled off to jail. He's going, wow, this is God's will for my life. Amazing. I don't know what you're dealing with. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's children, maybe it's marriage, relationships, the list goes on. Health, whatever it is. It's a, folks, it's about trusting him in the midst of the trial. I love it when I come through the end of a trial and I go, thank you, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I got through it. And that's true. And that's good. But remember the song, I will praise you in the storm. That's where you're going to find Jesus. When your life is pressed in, when it is hard, when it's just hard, you wake up in the morning, you think, man, this nightmare is never going to end. Whatever that thing is, those are the times where God does his best work in us. So I encourage you, you having trouble? Look for Jesus in the midst of it. In John 16, 33, Jesus, Jesus had been giving instruction to his men and he gives them a really good piece of advice. And in 16, 33, he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, 
you'll have tribulation, trouble. But be of good cheer. Cheer up. I have overcome the world. Oaks, you're not going to find peace in this world. You just won't. There are temporary respites, but ultimate peace, not available. Look around. Oh my goodness. I think it's hard on us because persecution's on the rise and people being ornery and all of that. Try being one of the people that's out there stuck in the world trying to figure this stuff out without Jesus. What a horrible load to bear. Notice the equation with what Jesus says. I have in my notes, Jesus, and then I have an equal sign, and then I have peace. And then I have the world, an equal sign, and trouble. It's just how it is. Lean into him. Allow him to shoulder your troubles. He wants to. The question is really, it's not whether or not he wants to. The question is, are you willing to trust him for it? Allow him to grow you in that way. The second thing I want to look at is what are the odds? Folks, (laughs) every Christian has been entrusted with what the Bible refers to as the ministry of reconciliation. I know, and I've heard people say, well, my ministry is more towards people in the church. Well, good for you. You still have a responsibility because there's a fallen and lost and dying world out there that needs to be reconciled to Christ. Each of us has been given that ministry. You don't have to be super gifted. I look at Paul. <laughs> He's a terrible orator. He is kind of contemptible in person. But look at, the, look at what he did for the kingdom. So it's not about having to be something special. The gospel is polarizing. And it's that way on purpose. It's not called the offense of the gospel for nothing. It's hard for people to digest. But oh, once they have done business with God, once they have come to that point of surrender, I, I love watching God pour it on in people's lives. I had an experience this week watching that very process unfold in some people's lives. How glorious. I was about two feet off the ground by the time I got home meeting. But it's uncomfortable. It feels risky when we share the gospel, when we share the love of Christ. It, 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 it might be because the people involved, you know that they're resistant. You know that they have been maybe even cruel in throwing off what it is you have to share. It may be that you're dealing with a culture that increasingly is hostile, a culture that would rather call you names than enter into any kind of healthy discourse. That's the world we live in. The bottom line is, yeah, it's risky to share our faith. In human terms, what do you think the odds were that Paul would be under arrest, allowed to address a crowd that had just moments before tried to kill him? Would you have walked away without even trying? It's a fair question. In Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, there's a wonderful principle principle that's put forth which directly applies uh, to those times when it seems risky to us. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. I don't know how many times, and and folks, there have been times where I've shrunk back. thought, oh, they're just going to get mad. They're just going to reject again, or they're this or they're that. I'm leaning to my own understanding in those times. Paul wasn't leaning to his own understanding when he gets to that point. He says, can can I talk to these people? Please, please, please. I mean, he's pretty adamant about it. And the Lord, the Spirit of God is working in, in the tribune's heart. He doesn't have to say yes, and he does. And then he holds up his hand and the whole crowd gets silent. They were, that was not their mood. My point is, you don't know what God is doing on the other side. You don't know the the condition of that person's heart or the things that they're wrestling with in their life or the fact that the Holy Spirit has just been on them, drawing them, saying, you know, you've got to give your life to Jesus. Be faithful to the message. Remember one time I was at a worship service uh, not long after I came, uh, after I had come out of the Mormon church and had given my life to Jesus. And uh, I was there at this worship, it was a men's worship service at, at a church in Southern Oregon where I was. And 
And I, I just in the middle of this thing, the Holy Spirit was, he was just on me. And he told me, it just that, that strong impression in my heart, I didn't hear words. <laughs> I'd like to tell people, you hear words, come and talk to me. But <laughs> it, it just in, in, in this strong impression in my heart, he said, put your hand on the back of the man in front of you. And I don't go around doing that. I mean, you know, it's like, I don't want to violate somebody's personal space and all. And I had this whole thing kind of wrestled it out in my mind. And finally, I just, I just reached out and I put my hand on this guy's back and he reacted. And I thought, oh, you know, I'm in trouble. <laughs> he told me later, and I, I, I have thought about this many times, and I didn't even know his name. We got acquainted, and he said, I got to tell you what was going on. And I said, what's that? He said, I got news today that my very best friend had committed suicide this morning. And I'm standing in the church in that worship service, and I'm pleading with the Lord, Lord, I need your touch, word for word. And then that hand, he said, that wasn't your hand. That was the hand of God. And I was completely blown away. I'm all teared up. Like, oh, you know. But I mean, that's just what it means to be obedient to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. You don't know what's going on. And I'm not saying we go around now and start grabbing people. That's not the point. <laughs> but I am saying that as you have that strong impression in your heart to share your faith, to share Christ, to say, look, let me tell you something. This is a life and death situation. And I want so much to see you in heaven. That's the transaction. The third thing, and we'll wrap up with this, is have you responded? Maybe you're on the other side of the equation this morning. Maybe the Spirit of God is tugging at your heart. Maybe you've never transacted with Him for the first time and released your life to Him. Maybe you've been flirting with an area of sin. Or you just sense that you are far away from God or that you you feel like He's far away from you. He hasn't moved, believe me. Maybe you have. Maybe you're one of those people that's hurting. Perhaps you feel beat up. Perhaps you're in bondage, not chains, but some other form of bondage. And you're allowing that in your life and it's getting in the way between you and the Lord. Let's bow our head. Father, this morning as we take this brief look in your word at, at, at the, just the remarkable actions of this man who was sold out for you. Lord, I don't know. I sense that there are those here that are wrestling in their walk with you, in their relationship with you. And that you're truly, your mercies are new every morning. Let this be a day of new beginnings. Perhaps there are those here or watching online that have never transacted with you, that have never said yes to Jesus. If you have never said yes to Jesus, or if you've been wrestling in your heart, wrestling in your life, if, if perhaps you're in bondage to some aspect of sin, or, or you're just feeling kicked around and you, you just need his touch. I'm not going to embarrass you or stand you up or anything like that, but I do want to pray for you, and I want to ask that you slip your hand up in the air. And let me pray for you this morning. Look up and meet my eye, if that's what you're doing. If, if I don't see you, is that what you're doing? Good, thank you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? This is a time, good, praise God. It's a time when we can do business with Him. Father, for these, perhaps for those that, uh, that are wrestling that, that didn't acknowledge, but Lord, we, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would flood into them, that you would take hold of their lives in a fresh new way, that they could see, Father, with spiritual eyes, the things that you have laid up for those that love you, as your word declares. We thank you, Father, for your grace, that unmerited favor, that uh, knowing that it doesn't depend upon me, but it depends, all of it depends upon you. And you simply ask by faith for us to come. And so, Father, I pray for each one here that we would simply come, that we could bow our hearts at the feet of the cross, that we could know, Lord, that you have taken a life that was worthless and headed 
for eternal separation from you and that you purchased it. And not only did you purchase my life, but that you've given me power, strength, direction, encouragement, gifts. Thank you, Lord, for that unseen kingdom that we are part of, that as you reach into this physical realm, that you would use us, equip us to be ambassadors for you, equip us to carry out the ministry of reconciliation. We're so thankful. So thankful that you've called us to be your own. So I pray, Father, that as we leave here today, that we would be a bit more conformed to the image of your son. We know that's the process. That's your desire. We yield to that. We surrender to that. In Jesus' name, amen.